mercy and peace from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Text for this morning, the familiar story of the prodigal son that Pastor Elliot's just read to us. Last week in our sermon series, we painted a picture of repentance as a joyful, continuous turning back to God in both our bad times and our good times and being swept up into his outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. Last week, we were called to the cross to discover the most thrilling, delightful, productive life possible, one that is ours when we discover the joy of repentance. Now, there are three parables, three stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, and ours is the last of the three, but each of them begs us to discover the joy of repentance. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage for all three stories. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now in verses 4 through 7, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep and their shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one that has gone astray. And he concludes with these words, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons, and I would add, who don't think they need to repent. In verses 8 to 10, he tells the parable of the lost coin, and he concludes again, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he comes to our lesson for today, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, which could just as easily be called the parable of the two wayward sons, or even the parable of the waiting father, or even more provocatively, the parable of, of the prodigal God. Because the definition of a prodigal is spending money or resources freely, recklessly, being wastefully extravagant. And all of a sudden, this becomes a story of a father who loves us all recklessly and extravagantly longing for us to come in and join the party. Now, we are called today to the cross to enter the joy of the real presence of our God. And it is, it is a living joy. It is living, joyful lives. And that's the goal of this message. Look, last week, Jesus talked about a fruitless fig tree that was in danger of being cut down. And if you were able to hear my message, I said that whenever I think of the fruit that Jesus comes looking for in our lives, I always think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I confessed before you all that unfortunately 
unfortunately, when Jesus comes looking for the fruit of the Spirit on the tree of my life of faith, what he's more likely to find is indifference, grumpiness, worry, shortness of temper, meanness, badness, inconsistency, harshness, and self-indulgence. Now, I need you to add to that this morning that I am married to a supernaturally joyful woman who has been begging me for months, coaching me and encouraging me that the critical ingredient of life that we so often miss is joy. So let's do it. Let's let's go to the cross again this morning that we may enter into that joy of the real presence of God for which we were created and which is the one thing needful that alone can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Now the story of the prodigal is is so familiar to most of you and so simple if it's not familiar that I am not going to spend a lot of time this morning rehearsing its details. There are two sons and a father. The younger son is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes with whom Jesus is spending time. And the Pharisees and the scribes who are all up in arms are obviously the older son and the father is who? The Father is God. Now, do you know the line, don't be such a killjoy? I believe that this story offers us two dead-end ways to kill joy in our lives and one way to raise it from the dead to a new and never-ending life. First of all, we can see clearly in the parable that you kill joy when you simply walk away from God and go looking for life in all of the wrong places. And then so the younger son packed his bags and he left. And I think we see a lot of that in our culture, don't we? I mean, people who have left behind the whole idea of a creator God who somehow designed us to live within certain boundaries and joy in our culture is the freedom mostly to do what you want, when you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. But as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that we may have invented a uniquely American upper middle class conservative Christian version of the younger son's approach. Now what do I mean? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may recognize as the name of a pastor in Germany who was appalled at how many in the German church found in Hitler a solution to their national problems. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship where he coined the phrase cheap grace, which is the idea that since God loves to forgive sins, It doesn't really matter if we keep on sinning as long as we keep singing, Jesus loves me. 
And so I sat there and I started to rehearse in my mind the second table of the Ten Commandments, Commandments number 4 through 10. And it occurred to me that there is actually a cheap grace version of this parable. There is a way of feigning moral conformity behind closed doors while all the while in our hearts and in our mind we have run far away from God and we still pursue all manner of self-indulgence. Now this new kind of prodigal will even come to church and confess generally I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. May even say in their own head, in their heart, now I will stop. But never really tries that hard. Isn't really interested in self-examination and discovering what fruits of the Spirit are lacking in their life. Has no real initiative to seek change. I mean, think about it. The fourth commandment, honor authority. I pledge allegiance to the flag, but I will speak all kinds of evil against the other party when it is in power and I will disguise it all as humor and post it on the internet. The fifth commandment, don't hurt or harm anyone but help and be a friend. And so I give to charity XYZ all the while despising freeloading welfare bums. Sixth commandment, Oh, I tout the biblical standard for sexuality, but I look and I watch hungrily at the sexual images that are rampant in our culture. The seventh commandment, I don't openly steal, but let me tell you that I am a consumer at heart who is driven by my desire for more. The Eighth Commandment, I watch what I say, truly I do most of the time, but I actually see no contradiction whatsoever in participating in mean-spirited attacks on those whom I deem as the cause of our economic and social problems. The Ninth and the Tenth Commandment, I will feign contentment while my eyes wander greedily over just about everything. I had to go back to Costco this week to pick up my hearing aids and I stood there right next to the big screen TV department. <laughs> and it's painful. I mean, a store stacked all the way to the ceilings with hundreds of items. In our Wednesday Bible study, the Old Testament book of Amos, I, I came across this quote from the Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing, who wrote the commentary that we are using. Listen to what he said about people in the 8th century B.C. and applied to us. There is a sickness and a madness in Western society called consumerism. The notion that life, we might insert joy, consists in having and getting and spending and controlling and using and eating. 
This system places stress on accumulation and believes that meaning and security come by, quote, more. How shall baptize, how shall those baptized into Christ live in a world with its titanic desire to acquire? How shall we live according to Paul's words in chapter 4, verse 11? I have learned in whatever circumstances I am in to be content. And just how do people live in a society that screams at them daily to buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people that they may not even like? <laughs> this new cheap grace prodigal that I've invented this morning is different from both the younger and the older son in Jesus' story because he stays home all right, but in his heart and in his mind, he is secretly running away. But then sometimes the older brother comes out to, to play. And we wind up killing joy for a second time when we live grumpy, religiously rigid, condescending, and judgmental lives. Wasn't it the comedian Jeff Foxworthy that invented the routine, you might be a redneck if? Well, you might be an older son sometimes if when something goes wrong in your life or a prayer that you offered isn't answered the way that you think that it should be, you say to yourself, what did I ever do to deserve this? You might be an older son killjoy if criticism doesn't just hurt your feelings, it devastates you. Or even the fear of criticism pushes you to workaholism because your worth depends upon your success and the approval of other people. You might actually be an older son if you sometimes feel irresolvable guilt. You know, when you do something that you know is wrong and your conscience torments you for a long time after you admit your sin because you're never quite sure whether you've repented deeply enough and so you beat yourself up over and over. You might be an older son if your relationship to God is a dry, lifeless affair where you show up here once a week and you go through the motions, but there is no real sense of wonder and awe and intimacy and a delight at the very thought of God's love for you in Jesus... And then the anger and the superiority of, of, of the elder brother all growing up out of insecurity and fear and inner emptiness can create this huge body of guilt-ridden, fear-controlled, spiritually blind people which across the pages of history is one of the great sources of social injustice and war and violence. 
Look, cheap grace prodigals and grumpy, religiously rigid, condescending, and judgmental older brothers are in the most danger because it is hardest for them to actually see how alienated they really are from God, which is what makes this parable more than just a little bit frightening. Look, full-blown, out-in-the-open prodigals, like the boy in our story, they hit the bottom. And the need to go home becomes clear to them, and they develop a viable plan. But, but in Jesus' story, ends without telling us. Whether the cheap grace son which I've invented for this sermon or the older brother ever went in to the celebration. But there is one more son in the story. He's the one telling the story. Jesus is the one and only perfect son. Begotten of the Father from all eternity. You know the words, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was made man. And this Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he longs to gather all under his wing like a hen gathers his chicks. Jesus receives what the younger brother deserves, what the cheap grace version of him deserves, and what the older brother deserves, Jesus is kicked out of the family. Jesus is disowned. Jesus is stripped naked. For the joy that was set before Jesus, which is you and me, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus was killed for joy killers like you and me and every other lost version of humanity that we could think of. And the only solution for all of us is death followed by resurrection. And so Jesus died. And he rose again so that by faith in him we die daily. We repent joyfully. We turn in joy back to discover our heavenly father standing there the whole time ready and waiting to celebrate no matter where we've been, no matter what we have done. Jesus' death is our death and Jesus' resurrection is our new life, fresh and new every morning of every every day until he comes again. Look, this week, let's put on the robe of Jesus' righteousness by remembering our baptisms every day. It is the best robe possible. It is, by the way, why we wear these silly white dresses on Sunday morning. To remind us that we have put on Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have been washed clean. I have some extras if you want to borrow one. Let's put on the ring 
that identifies us as a dearly loved, forgiven, bound for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, sons and daughters of the King. Let's remember who we are and that who we are is who God says we are and we are never anything less than that because of what we have done, but we are never ever any more than that based on what we have done. In Ephesians chapter 6, another of Jesus' first followers named Paul wrote about putting on the full armor of God and he, and he said this, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the robe and the, the ring are for your personal joy. The shoes the shoes make us ready to carry that joy, the gospel, the good news of Jesus out into this world. In his letter to the Romans, Paul quoted Isaiah and said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are called to the cross to enter into the joy of the real presence of God for which we were created. And that joy is the deepest satisfaction of the soul. Amen.